You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Um, okay, well, um, we are in a two-week series in Isaiah, and uh, which is, you know, it is what it is. I, I've, I've wanted to think, at least I could have conceived of this in my mind, to let our two weeks be built around Isaiah chapter 12 and then Isaiah chapter 40. And, and part of the, and if you have phones or a Bible somewhere, part of the logic for this is because I think Isaiah 40 understands itself in relation to Isaiah 12. Um, let, let me talk about this, uh, just, just a tad, uh, because this, this is one of those areas in the study of the Bible and, and Bible scholarship where there's, there's been a lot of ink spilled over the past 30, 35 years. And it's over this issue um, that gets a kind of jargony term, and it's uh, intertextuality. Um, and what, what they mean by intertextuality, and intertextuality, if any of you have done, maybe in your undergraduate days more recently, a kind of literary critical introduction 101, intertextuality has, within literary critical circles, all, all different kinds of meanings. Um, it's a kind of postmodern reading strategy that recognizes that we as readers bring all kinds of reading apparati, all kinds of conceptions and ideas and our own personal stories to the reading process. And it's never just a neutral activity of words on a page and we come and we read it. We bring our systems, we bring our stories, we bring things that are both explicit and tacit, both conscious and unconscious, to the reading strategies of, of the Bible. Um, a classic example of this um, is uh, uh, um, the Eiffel Tower in, in Paris. Um, years ago, I, I took my some of my little kids when we happened to be over there to the top of the Eiffel Tower. And when you move to the top of the Eiffel Tower, which I didn't think I was afraid of heights, but when it starts to move up there, I became afraid of heights. It was a <laughs> remarkable thing. Um, and so you're up at the, the top of the Eiffel Tower and you look down at Paris below you and, and, and this is, it's a very, I, I would think, understandable thought. I had it myself. Uh, look, look at how Paris is organized around the Eiffel Tower. I mean, the streets sort of moving in concentric circles and it just looks like right here on the river and everything. And the Eiffel, Paris has been built around the Eiffel Tower. It's remarkable. And then you realize that ain't the case, right? The Eiffel Tower is a what, late, late, sort of mid-19th, late-19th century um, structure. Most of Paris had already been established, at least its infrastructure in the city at that point, the streets and the systems. So, so the Eiffel Tower is, in some sense, kind of relative to the city of Paris in the way in which it relates. It, it, it serves as a ballast, but it's a kind of a latecomer to the game with the way in which Paris is structured. So the, the point is we all bring certain kinds of Eiffel Towers of our own life and understanding to the reading of any text. We, we can't avoid that. We can't transcend it. Now, I don't think that means that texts that we read become wax noses, that we can sort of move to do whatever we want them to do. But I think it's an important thing for us to register on some level that when we read the text, and I'm thinking here specifically about the Bible, when we read the Bible, we're bringing things to our reading that we are aware of and that we are unaware of. And and that's that's just the nature of what it means to read. Um, now, of course, this is where literary critical studies will go one way and Christian theologians will go another way because a Christian theologian is going to say, well, then how in the world can we make sense of anything that we're reading, especially in the Bible? 
And how does it not just become a mirror projection of our own best selves or our own best ideals? How do we avoid the fact that then the, 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 the Bible becomes a mirror of ourselves? And the answer that I think the church gives to that is in a person, the effective power of the Holy Spirit. And we believe with the Reformation tradition, we're going to talk about this a lot in Isaiah 40 this morning, but we believe with the Reformation tradition that you never have the Word of God and the Spirit of God separated from one another. Where the Word of God is active, there the Spirit of God goes. And where the Spirit of God is active as well, there too goes the Word of God. I think we're seeing a lot, especially over the last 100 years, a lot of challenges um, in Christian practice and theology uh, around this notion about the importance of relating the Word and the Spirit. Because I think some of us might tend to want to go in one direction over against the other. I, I kind of like the freewheeling character of the Spirit to move in this direction. Some of us may be a little bit more, I don't know, cerebral or cognitive. We're like, I'm more of a Word kind of person. And I think what the tradition of Christian theology, especially the tradition we inhabit here at the Advent, would affirm, you don't get the Word of God without the Spirit of God, and you don't have the Spirit of God without the testimony of, of the Word of God. Um, they, they mutually influence one another. This, this gets back to kind of tricky theological matters. But when you talk about God's action and what God does, God does what He does always in the unity of His three persons. There's the, in other words, the Father and the Son and the Spirit aren't out there as kind of freewheeling agents doing their own thing. They always work in accord with one another, and that has to do um, with the Scriptures as well. So, so back to the issue of intertextuality. Um, so, so intertextuality is a sort of big, daunting task within all of postmodern literary critical reading strategies. I think I'm using it, and a lot of people in biblical scholarship use it in a much more low-flying, simple way. And, and this is how intertextuality functions. How are older texts embedded in newer texts? In other words, what do you do when you're reading a text and you real, you're reading along and you realize, that sounds familiar to me? Um, even when the familiarity of it, for example, doesn't immediately come off the page because the author didn't say, as Chaucer said, or as uh, Jane Austen said on page three of whatever, but there's this sort of hearing of older texts that get embedded in newer texts as a process of reading and hearing and keeping older texts alive. The Bible is a master at intertextuality. The Bible listens to itself. To my mind, this is one of the more interesting and fascinating subject matters really in all of the study of the Bible, is how is the Bible listening to itself? Um, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, there's a lot of examples. Here, here's two, just off the top of that. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. The Apostle Paul says, and if you have a Bible, you can look at it. I'm going to turn real fast. 1 Corinthians, New Testament, right? I don't spend a lot of time there. First um, Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. One God, the Father, one Lord, Jesus Christ. And you hear that and you think, and at least I hear that and think, that sounds really familiar. What's that one God language going on here? And then if you press into it, you realize even though Paul's not telling you this, Paul is reading the Shema. He's reading the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And you shall love him with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. He's reading the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, but he's shaping it around what he believes God has done in time in Jesus. One Father and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is reading the Shema of Deuteronomy in Trinitarian terms. Here's another one for you. Philippians chapter 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you hear that and you're thinking, man, that sounds kind of familiar too. I've heard that somewhere. And the place where you've heard that somewhere is Isaiah chapter 45, where Isaiah the prophet announces that every knee will bow and confess homage to the Lord, to Israel's God. And now you see Paul receiving that Isaianic word, recalibrating it in light of what's happened in time in Jesus. And he's, he's shaping our understanding of Isaiah 45 in light of what God has done in Christ. So, so the, the point, and, and this could go on and on. The genealogies in Matthew, Hebrews reading of Leviticus, um, Romans reading of Isaiah, uh, Matthew's reading of the whole history of Israel. I mean, you could just, you, I mean, you could just open the New Testament and throw a rock. Um, and it's going to have some kind of reference and it's going to bleed in some way the ways in which the older texts of the Old Testament continue to shape and pressure. I like that term, pressure. It's coercive in the ways in which the New Testament conceives of what God has done in Jesus. And that's not merely a New Testament phenomenon. The Old Testament is doing it too. The Old Testament is listening to itself where these traditions from the past are heard again and, the, and then reapplied in new situations. And I think that's what's going on in Isaiah chapter 12 and Isaiah chapter 40. So if we'll look at Isaiah chapter 12 one more time. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. And here's the language, right? We talked about this last week. For, and I had the ESV this morning um, and I, I think the NIV actually does this better, but that's another conversation. Um, For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. I want you to hear that language, that you might comfort me. Um, I want to fiddle with that verse like I did last week, just a tad, because I don't, the way in which it's expressed here in the ESV is that Isaiah chapter 12 is, is bringing us into the praise of something that God has done. We'll give thanks to you because you removed our sin, your, your anger from us. That's not the language of the text, though. The language is actually more interesting and nuanced. And I'll, I'll gloss it this way if you don't mind. In that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, because even though you were angry with me, your anger had turned toward us. And you're like, well, what anger are we talking about? Just turn back a few pages and start reading Isaiah 5 and 6, and you get a sense about what the stakes are with Isaiah in this 8th century moment. Um, Judah is under duress in the judgment of God. Uh, in the Syro-Ephraimite debacle from 734 B.C., where the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria had come together in an alliance to go against Ahaz and Judah in the south, it was a bad moment. And then 30 years later, you've got Sennacherib and his troops coming down into from the northern kingdom down into the southern kingdom and wreaking all kinds of trouble. Isaiah's days of prophecy were not happy moments. right? So they knew what it was to speak about the anger of the Lord and the judgment of the Lord being poured out on them. That was their moment. So here they are in that anger, and, I mean, in the moment of God's displeasure. And, and what's Isaiah telling them? Give thanks to the Lord. It's, it's bold stuff, by the way. There's a lot of prophetic chutzpah that you find throughout the prophets, right? Give thanks to the Lord in the middle of this. Well, why in the world would we give thanks? 
I mean, Sennacherib just destroyed Lachish. I mean, our, the whole infrastructure of Judah will never be the same. Why would we give him praise and thanks? And here he moves into these future tense verbs. Let your anger be turned away from us so that you will comfort us in time. And this future promise that you have Isaiah saying in Isaiah chapter 12 is a future promise that... So, and this, this is the central theme, I think, of Isaiah in many ways, or a central theme, because it's so rooted and grounded in the character and the being of God that Isaiah can speak about a future reality that has not yet occurred with such concrete vividness that the people who are in a moment of displeasure now can sing and rejoice despite the fact that they're not in that future moment, but it's as good as done. Why is it as good as done? Because it's attached to the promises of God's Word. And because it's attached to the promises of God's Word, we can sing and we can rejoice because God is our Savior and we will delight in Him. And all this language of Isaiah 12 that we sing in morning prayer around here all the time, surely it is God who saves us. That's future promise hope. So here you have Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 12 looking forward to the promise of God that in time He will comfort us. We're experiencing His displeasure now. We're experiencing the significance of the divine no of God's judgment now. But that's not definitive of God's being or His relating to us. Because if there's a kind of ongoing theme throughout Isaiah, I think the theme goes something like this. The no of God's judgment will in time yield to the yes of His grace and His forgiveness. That's the sort of movement. So you hear this language here, Isaiah chapter 12, in that day you might comfort me. Then if you go to Isaiah chapter 35, I'm conscious of the time here, Isaiah 35, now we begin to hear some other themes that are going to get picked up in Isaiah 40, as Isaiah 40 listens to its past. Here again you have a promise of the return of God to His people, the glory of the Lord, verse 2. They shall see it and the majesty of our God. Um, Verse 4, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and don't fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and He will save you. Hear all this He will language. Verse 5, oh, and here's another one of those areas where you go, goodness, this kind of sounds familiar too. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. You're like, oh my goodness, this, and I do think Isaiah is remarkable in this way. What's going on here? Here Isaiah in chapter 35 is listening to himself back in Isaiah chapter 6. Do you remember the the metaphors that were used there when Isaiah finally said, I'll go for you, I'll be your spokesman, I'll deliver the word of God to your people, what is it that you want me to say? And you remember what God says? Your word is going to be the means by which I blind their eyes and deafen their ears. Your word is going to be a word of judgment unto them until a tenth of the city remains and everything is destroyed. And then you have this little little bitty word of hope at the end. Holy seed will be its stump. You're like, what does that mean? Well, we'll have to say that for another time. But um, was Isaiah 11 read today in Lessons and Carols? I'm in the 11 o'clock service today. Was it? Was Isaiah 11 in there? The root of Jesse? Uh, was that read? That's 
holy seed is its stump. End of Isaiah 6. That little bit of hope that's in the middle of all this destruction. Isaiah 11 leans right into that. What's the seed from the stump? It's this promised root and branch that comes from Jesse in time. Isaiah chapter 11. So you have that back there. Deafness and blindness as the metaphor for God's judgment. And what do we have here in Isaiah 35? Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Um, verse 8, here's another one that's going to get picked up as well. A highway will be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. And you hear all those things, but that sounds really familiar. Well, it does. Because when you turn to Isaiah 40, now just listen. We've got comfort. We've got blindness and deafness. We've got a highway of the Lord. And listen to these words in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out to her. And what is it that we cry out? Her warfare is ended. Her iniquities are pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert, uh, here's Isaiah 35, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places will become a plain. Verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what do you have going on here in Isaiah chapter 40? In Isaiah chapter 40, you have a kind of repeat of Isaiah's moment in the divine council of God's own throne room, his own divine council that we found him in discussion back in Isaiah chapter 6. I heard, uh, I heard a voice saying, I heard them speaking to themselves, who will go for us? Isaiah chapter 6. That's the language of God's own divine counsel. And here you have in Isaiah chapter 40 the same language of that counsel. And what's the word now coming from the divine counsel? No longer de deafness and blindness. But now it's double comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Her iniquities are going to be forgiven. Her sins are going to be, are going to be, are going to be removed. And then what's this in verse 3 here? What's the, the notion here about a highway for our God? It's, it's an interesting turn of phrase here. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. There are some readers of Isaiah who will suggest that this is a highway that's meant to be built for the return of the exiles from Babylon back to Judah. Because you remember what happened in the middle of all of this a commotion in the 8th century moving all the way into the 6th century B.C. that you move from all these difficult foreign invaders that Judah and Israel had to face. From the Assyrians, then in time to the Babylonians. And once the Babylonians come onto the scene, they exile the people of God, they tear down their walls, they destroy the temple. I mean, it, it is the great overturning of Judah's um, whole existence before themselves and before God. It, it's cataclysmic. It's that kind of event in their history that has to be understood as a before and an after. Um, and so here they are in an exilic moment. And some have argued that this highway here that we're preparing is a highway of what? Well, it's the return of the exiles back to the land. When King Cyrus had a moment of, I guess, sort of an international policy. And you know this about King Cyrus when the Persians overthrew the, um, through the Assyrians. King Cyrus, unlike the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the Persians had a different kind of foreign policy. Their foreign policy was not to, for lack of a better term, Babylonianize everybody. 
And you remember that was the case with these exiles that went into Babylon. Think Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are all Babylonian names. They, they had to have a whole reversal of their identity to get absorbed into Babylonian culture and religion. And you remember reading the first few chapters of Daniel that caused all kinds of problems for Daniel and his friends because they couldn't be absorbed cleanly and neatly into Babylonian culture. That wasn't Cyrus's approach. Cyrus's approach was to allow all those states that were vassals to him or in subservience to him to have their own culture and identity, even their own governmental system. And he would even fund it. And there are those, I think, who look back at this and see this as a kind of largesse, um, a political kindness and graciousness from this Persian king. I don't think that's really the case at all. I think it was just shrewd. I mean, this is the way in which one keeps a large kingdom under your thumb is to allow people to have their way as long as they recognize who the boss is at the end of the day. So there are some who would argue that this highway for the, for, for, uh, and to be built in the wilderness is for the Babylonians to come back. But that is, and, and that makes a lot of sense, except for the fact that it's not what it says, right? <laughs> what are you making straight in the desert a highway for? It's a highway for our God. Um, it's a highway for the return of the Lord himself back to his people. You'll, you'll remember one of those haunting scenes in Ezekiel when the prophet says that he sees, in effect, the back door of the temple open up and the presence of God leaves the temple to go out into the wilderness. Um, what, what, what's at the heart of Israel's great hope and reason for being? Answer, God being in their midst. That's why the temple's so important. That's why the tabernacle was their very life. That's why I think it's okay to think in sacramental terms about the nature of the temple itself. The temple, that physical entity, sitting there on, on that mountaintop in the middle of Jerusalem, standing as a testimony to the people of God that their God has made promises to them to be with them. And their whole health, politically, religiously, from the standpoint of their civilization, was built around the standpoint that the temple stands in the center. Our God is with us. That's why Emmanuel, the promise in Isaiah 7 and 8, is so important for the people of God. It's the promise of God's presence with them. For God to be with them is for them to be... It's, it's a matter of spatial proximity. To be nearer to God is to be nearer to the very center of the universe and its reason for being. And that's why this whole notion about God's presence in the temple is so central to Israel's identity. And we know that his judgment is what? It's a judgment of the removal of his presence. I think that's why you have someone like Amos the prophet saying, we'll take a famine of bread and water, but not a famine of your word. Why? The removal of God's word is the removal of God's presence from his people. So this is the great moment here. And what's the reversal that we have in Isaiah chapter 40? A highway. It's being built. A straight highway. I mean, I was never great in the whole, in the maths, but I've heard that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Alright. So that's, that's the idea here. Crooked paths are being made straight. Um, rough places are being hewn down so that they're now smooth. And what's, what's the point of all this beautiful imagery that we're so familiar with from Handel's Messiah? The point of it is, remove all obstructions. For what reason? Because God's coming back. The Lord's, the Lord is on His way back to His people. His presence will be with us again. And it is our only hope. It is the comfort. So think about this in the, in the logic of Isaiah here. Announce the comfort of God to His people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. 
And what's the substance of that comfort that's being offered here? God's promised return. He's coming back to them. And in the coming of His presence to be with them, they know that He brings salvation and deliverance with Him in His hands. So when you come down to verse 6, again, you have, this sounds familiar, right? This is kind of an intertextual reference back to Isaiah 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Does that, that, remember that back in Isaiah 6? Yeah, here you go. I'll just so you don't think I'm buffaloing. And I heard of the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. A voice says in verse 6, cry. And I said, back in Isaiah 40, what shall I cry? Again, we're back in the divine council of Isaiah chapter 6. And what's the substance of the message? And with this, I'll be done. What's the substance of the message? Um, it's twofold. So we have the comfort of God in His returning presence. And we have the announcement from the prophet to the people of God that's going to emphasize two things. One of them is something that I think we all just know very well, though we don't like to deal with it. And that's this. All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. So what's what's the language here? What's the I mean so you got this bit, there's been a lot of timpanies in Isaiah chapter 40, right? I mean comfort comfort my people, the return of God on, on a on a highway that's been built for him back to his people. I mean this is lots of symbol crashes, lots of timpanies. This is a big moment. And what's the nature of the prophetic word that's being brought in this moment? Um, just remember that all humanity is just like the grass of the field. Um, it, it comes and it goes. It grows one day and it becomes hay the next day and it gets chewed up by some cows the next day and then it's gone, right? So that's, that's kind of how grass works. Um, and, and, and the bad news is that's a beautiful metaphor for your existence, right? Um, you know, there's that line in Psalm 103 where it says, and the, and the place will remember your name no more. Like, that's a humbling kind of thing, isn't it, right? Um, so that's what he's saying, but it's, it's a setup. He's playing here over these, with these two images about humanity and flesh and what it means to be a people, what it even means to be a civilization, that that's something that's like the grass of the field or, or Mother's Day flowers that are beautiful in the morning and by Tuesday they're not, right? That's a metaphor for your existence. Well, what stands over against that? If, if I'm not stable, if flesh is not stable, if humanity and humanity's best efforts and intentions are not the rock on which I can stand, then where does one find stability in the kind of worldly existence that we live in where things are growing up one day and they're dead the next? Where is stability? And here you have it. But the word of our God will stand forever. Grass withers, flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. I, I have a little bit of a slight uh, man crush on a 19th century um, Old Testament scholar named Franz Dalich. Um, he looked very ornery in the pictures that I've seen of him, so I'm probably glad I haven't met him. Um, but he was a, a, he was a committed, um, uh, godly Bible scholar. Matter of fact, in the world of my sort of upbringing, it was kind of your Old Testament 
fundamentalist bar mitzvah to receive the Kyle and Dalich commentary series on the Old Testament. Maybe, maybe some of you have that on your shelf. Uh, so I have a lot of time for, for, for Hans Dalich. Um, and Dalich raises the question in his commentary all the way back in the late 1800s, where is Isaiah the prophet for the rest of the chapter? Or for the rest of the book? Um, and his kind of fun turn of phrase is, he's like a ghost that hovers in the background but is never quite present anymore. I think it's a now. Of course, critical scholars raise all kinds of issues about how Isaiah came together. I don't want to talk about that at all. Um, but I do think that we have to wrestle with the phenomenon here that after Isaiah chapter 39, we have no prophet mentioned again. Isaiah's name never shows up. There's no reference to any other prophet. Uh, and I think this is this is a fascinating kind of aspect of the literary structure of Isaiah and the form in which we have it. There are various kinds of answers that people can give to that, but I want to at least give what I think could be one answer to that, to, to the phenomenon and, and the cause for why it is. It's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, um, but the word of our God will stand forever. Um, because... Isaiah the prophet, I, I do, I find comfort in this. He's, he's pushing up daisies, you know. Um, in fact, according to the tradition, um, you know, Isaiah the prophet went in the most horrible of ways. You know, Hezekiah was a godly king. He kind of punted at the end, but he was for the most part a godly king. But his son, who ruled after him for a very long time, the worst in the history of Judah, King Manasseh. I mean, you want to talk about reading things that will make the hair on your neck stand up. Just follow Manasseh as he goes down to the valley of Ben-Hinnom and he offers his own children as sacrifices to the god Molech. That's Hezekiah's son doing that. And the tradition has it that, Hezekiah, that the Manasseh heard that Isaiah was hiding in the, in the trunk of a tree. Um, and he sent his men to go and cut the tree in half, Isaiah included. That's the tradition. So Isaiah is dead. He's gone, as is Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And just go through all the minor prophets. They're all gone, kicking up, um, pushing up pansies somewhere as well. But not their word. Because the word of God stands forever. Um, people who communicate and teach God's word, they come and they go. But guess what? Isaiah is going to be here if the Lord hasn't returned and he tarries. Isaiah the prophet's going to be here in a hundred years, or two hundred, or a thousand, or ten thousand, still doing its work, still presenting its message, still offering the word of comfort that it offers, which seems offered it so long ago in such radically different historical circumstances than you and I even know. We wouldn't if we saw a chariot going down Eighth Avenue South, we'd be like, "What in the heck is that?" Right? But we just live in different worlds. But the word of God stands forever. It continues to do its prophetic work. It continues to offer to us what? The presence of God. The highway of God being built here for God's presence to return in Isaiah 40 is all wrapped up in the promise of God's Word continually being present with His people. That's why we yearn for His Word. That's why we do the Bible study thing. That's why we listen to the Word preached. That's why we enter into our liturgical life together. That's why we go to the table and celebrate the Eucharist together. Why? Because the Word of God stands forever. It continues to have its agency and presence in our midst as it brings its Word of salvation and hope for us. Um, Isaiah lived in a time, and no, no matter how you sort of plot Isaiah historically, 
if you leave them in the 8th century or you allow the book to even move all the way into the exilic period, Isaiah the prophet and his words never uh, operated in a happy time. Th- these were difficult moments. Even, even Hezekiah provided his own kind of challenges. And what's the stability and hope that he offers in Isaiah's own Advent moment? The Word of God stands forever. And this, by the way, is why I think in John's Gospel, the language that's used there is, in the beginning was the Word. <laughs> and the Word was with God. John 1.14, and the Word uh, became flesh and dwelt among us. So you see here in Isaiah 40, the prophet is thinking about the presence of God and the Word of God as the flip sides of the same coin. And in John chapter 1, he's doing the same thing. The Word of God and the presence of God, the tabernacle of God, are the same thing. And we meet it in the person of Jesus Christ. So Lord, thank you for um, this kind of gospel word that you have not left us alone. Um, We know that we're just grass. (laughs) We're just like flowers that come up and then go away. But Lord, the stability that you've given us in your word... Lord, I pray that in this season of Advent, it will fill our hearts with hope and that it will plant our feet on sure ground, the ground that you have spoken and that you've given us your Son, who is the Word of God enfleshed, to draw us into your very life and to fill us with hope for the future. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.